The Start On Demand. On demand. Air Canada has some egg on its face after a woman woke up on a darkened plane in Toronto, having been left on the plane by the crew. Her phone died. She couldn't charge it because the plane was powered down. The airline is looking into it. A new national survey on happiness says Canadians over the age of 55 tend to be happier. The survey also says most don't consider money to be a factor in their happiness. Is it a factor for you? And is Airbnb clogging up the rental market in Canada's biggest cities? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb, and this is the Monday, June 24th podcast for The Start. just read something to you guys that just Mm -hmm. came across our newswire here just going to bounce this off because i think it's kind of funny the first line of this news release across canada underage youth are legally restricted from purchasing alcohol marijuana cigarettes and vaping products but according to recently released data in a study published yesterday in the british medical journal they are using them anyway you yes. needed a study for that? Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for spending so your I'm money. So I'm not allowed to use it if I'm underage, hmm. but underage people are still drinking, smoking, and trying drugs. Is this what we're learning? Yes. This is brand new information. Oof. Breaking news. Well, I'm glad I'm armed with that as a parent now. Thank you. Okay, so it's can changing I- everything about how I will go home tonight and talk to my kids. Yeah, you wouldn't believe the conversation I used to have. I had to have with one of my kids on Saturday night. How long do I have to tell this? Thirty seconds. Uh, Ninety seconds. I was out with uh, with some friends, some old friends from the West End, on uh, Saturday night, and I get a text uh, from home. You need to come home. I'm like, come on, I'm not coming home. I just got here, just settling in. I'm gonna have a barbecue. So, phone. What's going on? Just found your son. Um, hanging out of his second story window with a basketball, thinking that he was going to shoot a basketball from the second story window. And when I called him on it, he said, well, I saw it on YouTube. I thought it would be oh, fun. No. So he was, he was, dismantled the screen. He wasn't going to jump. He just wanted to see if he could make the shot from the window. From the window. But we're thinking that he had he not been discovered, maybe 45 seconds later, he might've been on the roof. Oh, to make I, this basketball mm-hmm, shot. Mm-hmm. Oh. Who hasn't climbed on the roof as a kid? That's just what you do, man. Well, that's what all my friends said. I don't ever remember climbing up Are on the kidding? roof. But, oh, uh, I remember the first time I figured out how to get on the roof. I was like, why haven't I been on this roof all this time? This is amazing up here. Okay, so I need from listeners at yeah, 780 From the deck onto the eavesdrop, which could have busted. I recognize that. We'd push each other up, and then we'd just get up there and walk around on the roof. Nothing nothing bad that was going to happen fun. except for, all you know, right. breaking your neck or something like that. I need to know all the different escape routes that I haven't thought about. Text yeah. them to me, please. Did he make the shot? Oh, no, I didn't get a chance to attempt the shot. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about it before he's up, before his friends are up. And, and so if we can maybe not yeah. reference it later on, but I, hey, I wanted to share that with hey, you this morning. You should ban him climbing on the roof, but he's still going to do it. Make it illegal for him to climb on that roof. But guess what? And I then, think we should do a study because tr- I don't believe kids still do try. things that they're not supposed God. to do. I'm going to go ask him. How it, I'm going to go show him how to get on that roof. <laughs> Stay away from my kids, McNabb. <laughs> a report released by some of Airbnb's biggest critics is showing that Toronto's rec- rental vacancy issues could be solved if... Short-term units infringing on city rules were put back in the market. There's been a lot of controversy about Airbnb and about how many people own either condos or units that would otherwise potentially, and I think there's a really strong assumption here that there aren't a lot of people who are purchasing condos in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto with the express intent of renting them out as Airbnb. When Jackie and I went to Montreal with a couple of friends a couple of years ago, we did the Airbnb. It's the only time I've done it. But we stayed in this condo building, 
And I bet you half the units in this mm-hmm. 45-story building attached to the Bell Center are Airbnb. You wouldn't believe the lineup of people that were meeting the owners to get keys on the Friday night. Now, Airbnb, it is said, could have sapped as many as 31,000 units out of Canada's rental market in the last year. That's enough to represent a drag of as much as one percentage point on vacancy rates uh, in each of the country's three biggest cities. That's uh, close to the total rental vacancy rate in each city, as reported by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. You may know them as CMHC. Global's Matthew Bingley looks at the contentious state of affairs in Toronto. More than a year has passed since the city approved bylaws to balance the short-term rental market led by Airbnb, which it blames for cannibalizing the city's rental vacancy rate. But that law is tied up with an appeal process which won't be heard until August. With the rules unenforced, Airbnb's biggest critics say the city's housing situation is getting worse. Six and a half thousand entire homes have been turned into ghost hotels. Today, Fair B&B, a coalition made up of groups including regulated hotels and B&Bs, released a report which says of the roughly 19,000 Airbnb units in the city, more than 8,200 aren't operating within the city's rules. If we wait another year or two until we get a ruling from LPAT, we may be looking at over 10,000 units in the city of Toronto that are used entirely as ghost hotels. Airbnb is in fact exacerbating the problem of affordable housing. Downtown City Councillor Joe Cressy says if those units were put back on the market now, it would improve the city's rental vacancy rate of 1.1% to a healthy 3%. Just do it. Airbnb said from the get-go that they were prepared to work with the City of Toronto and would abide by our rules. So don't play this out in the courts, don't wait for an OMB ruling, don't let the, un- the affordability crisis worsen for a further year. Jordy Dent works for a tenants' rights agency and calls the city's rental market a nightmare. The province is uh, working on a consultation right now, looking at how we can add more units. I mean, you could do this tomorrow, and again, the housing crisis would be much, much, much better off. Airbnb issued a statement blasting the report for being based on what it calls faulty assumptions and poor research, and yet another example of the well-resourced and clearly biased hotel lobby seeking to villainize families who are making a little extra income by sharing their homes. Dag repeated Airbnb's claim that it wants to be regulated, but wants the process to be fair, sensible, and collaborative with the city. Matthew Bingley, Global News. The rental market is already pretty tough, as you heard, uh, in those cities, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and several across the country. In case you're curious, the Winnipeg current vacancy rate is around 3%, which is quite a bit higher than it was about yeah. a decade mm-hmm. ago. It used so. to be less than one. It was yeah. so tight to it, find a, uh, an apartment here. Yeah. Uh, I, I did a quick look at Airbnb listings for um, various dates, random dates in Winnipeg, and a lot of them had about 300 uh, available listings for Airbnb. So Airbnb... Airbnb is a thing in Winnipeg. Uh, I think they listed Airbnb listed Winnipeg as one of their kind of go-to hot mm-hmm. markets right now. The last but two relatives that had come through Winnipeg re- rented something through Airbnb. They didn't do a hotel. That's interesting, right? Yeah. Because we've spoken to the Hotel Association. We're having more hotel rooms built in this city, as clearly as many hotels in Winnipeg now as there have ever been. Higher-end hotels, renovations to hotels. And if you go and try and book a hotel anywhere in North America right now, despite all this Airbnb activity, hotel prices have never been higher. It's absolutely insane to get a hotel in uh, some of the major cities in Canada and the United States. Yeah, we're actually looking at uh, going to just to Calgary for a weekend next month. um, And the, the hotel prices are like, we wanted to stay at, I don't know, it's called like Le Hotel Germain. Mm. Uh, Which they own the uh, Alt Hotel here yeah. in Winnipeg, right? It's a good chain. Yeah, it was, looked like a really nice place, and then I looked at the price and mm-hmm. said, "Okay, I guess we're not staying there because it was pretty. Cost, it was like five hundred bucks mm-hmm. for the weekend. So as much as nice as it would be, mm-hmm. I mean, we can save some money. We did look at Airbnb as well. The prices were about the same, so it wouldn't have been any better to do that. So we'll, I don't know why, where we're going to stay 
if we go. But have you done Airbnb in the past? No, I haven't. Have you ever done no. a McNabb? No. This is pretty simple. I've only done it the one time. But I, it- I live in fear of the whole, especially when you're going with family. Like, it's okay if I'm doing my, if I was going on my own somewhere, I would look into it, but it, to bring the kids and the husband and then, and then to get there. And I'm always worried it's going to be just a disaster or a scam or something like that. Right. And then, so, so to impact your whole family's vacation, if I was doing it on my own, eh, you know, you'd one of figure my buddies in Montreal had that happen to him. They showed up and it was not the picture on the ad mm-hmm. and it was seven of them and they were supposed to be staying there for six nights. It was <laughs> Thousands of dollars this place, and they had to go out and get hotel rooms. Isn't that, though, the case? I mean, you could have a hotel situation like that or a bed and breakfast. I remember renting a place years ago when I, we were traveling through South Africa, and it was supposed to be Ocean View. And as we're driving towards it, like I'm like, we are so far from the ocean. There's no way this thing has an ocean view. But sure enough, the guy took us yeah. to the spot on the property. No, like if you climbed under the roof and squinted, <laughs> speaking of roof climbing, then you're like, oh, yeah. In the distance, there is the ocean. Yeah, Not yeah. quite ocean view. Mackling McGarry McNabb. Jeff Braun is here. Cam Poitras is here. Jeff Fortier. And here is the story from Air Canada. They say they're looking into how crew members could have disembarked from a plane without noticing a sleeping passenger who was left behind. The airline was responding to an incident involving a woman who described waking up all alone on a cold, dark aircraft after a flight to Toronto earlier this month. Tiffany Adams recounted her ordeal in a June 19th Facebook post. The airline confirmed the incident took place but declined to comment on its disembarking procedures or how the passenger may have been overlooked. Adams wrote that after she woke up, she called a friend to try to explain what happened, but her phone died and she couldn't charge it because the plane was off, the power was out. She said she was full-on panicking by the time she managed to unbolt a cabin door, lean out of the aircraft and call over a ground crew who got her out. Air Canada said in a Facebook response to the post, it was surprised to hear the story and very, con- quote, very concerned, mm. asking Adams to send a private message with her flight details. So uh, that got us curious to know if you've ever fallen asleep and been left behind or some if it inspired some other story. It's weird that she wouldn't have talked to someone at the airport after she got out of the plane. Like, why, why would Air Canada only find out about it on the Facebook page? Well, they, it sounds like they called her on the way home. They offered her a ride home and then called her twice to apologize that night. Yeah. I don't get how this happens. And I, and I also don't get that, little, not just the flight crew, like they're to blame in the sense that's their responsibility, yeah. obviously, to clear the plane. But then having you been next to someone on a plane or train who's fallen asleep and you get to the location and you, even if you don't know them, like, have you not ever tapped someone on the shoulder and said, we're here? No. No. I, no? Would, I would never do that. I, I never know if so, sometimes people stay on the plane and take off, you know what I mean? It's just a layover for them. Yeah, but you know when the, you, it, it says in the plane if it's a connecting flight. Like, you should know that. I remember um, traveling to, I was going to, I'm thinking it was Pakistan for a story, but it went through uh, Hong Kong, the flight, I think. I'm trying to remember now. But I knew I had to sleep on the plane because we we're going to hit the ground running. So I took a gravel like 30 minutes before the flight was going to take off in hopes of by the time I got on the plane, I'd be able to sleep for 14 hours. And then I sat myself down right next to like the kiosk, you know, where like people line up to board the plane. I was like, and then I fell asleep and I was like, well, someone's I was thinking they'll wake me up. They'll see me leaning against this counter. Like I'm not just choosing this counter because I'm not on this flight. And it wasn't until the last possible second. And this woman who didn't speak English is kicking me, not the flight attendant, <laughs> but she's kicking me. And she's like trying to signal like you, are you on this plane? Like she's pointing to the plane and I look up and I'm all like dry mouth and nobody <laughs> said anything. And I'm just racing down the gangway. What do you call that thing now? Because I'm going to miss my whole assignment is to get to this country. I think it was reported in an earthquake. And I and nobody said a word until except for this one lady. So, Jeez. I, I, I don't know. That's she scary. saved you. She saved me. I would yeah, think it would have been fire. Honestly, <laughs> you didn't take the flight. What? <laughs> How did that not happen? Oh, I'm really tired. If, even if you wanted, even if you were trying to hide away on this airplane, think about how difficult it would be. To stay on the plane on purpose. Right. Her sweater must have uh, matched like the fabric on the seats or something oh. like that. Like, how would they not camouflage? <laughs> exactly. Maybe she was just wearing like that weird uh, mottled color, like or like pleather, like, like an old pleather suit. 
That's like a Sherlock Holmes trick, right? Where he wears the clothes yeah. and blend it into the walls. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've never. I, I've I have fallen asleep on on a bus before and gotten to the end of the line. I woke up very disoriented. I was this was back twenty years ago when I was still going to school at the U of M, and uh, the end of the line is is the U of M, and I wake up to a bus driver standing at the front shouting at me, and I there's no one on the bus. I'm like, oh my god, how long have I been? So it was probably like honestly the bus emptied and then he looked back and saw me just passed out in the back and uh, and I've fallen asleep before on the bus where people were laughing at me because I was leaning up against the window and then the bus would go over a bump and my head would go bam <laughs> on the window. But other than that, I've never fallen asleep in a really bad spot. Ever fallen asleep at the wheel? Yes. Nope. Yeah, I've I've done that. What? Yeah, I passed out for probably. I think I think it was probably about five seconds. Oh, five seconds? Yeah. I went to Las Vegas for my buddy's um, stag, mm-hmm. and I thought I would save a few bucks and drive to Minneapolis and fly out to Minneapolis and back. That's always a bad decision. Yeah, took the red eye home, and I woke up at 100 kilometers an hour in the ditch on I-29 <laughs> oh between God. Fargo and Grand Forks, and I was full-on in the ditch, full-on, fast asleep, woke up. Didn't panic, just kind of tapped the brake and just drove up onto the shoulder. Oh, you're lucky. Like, you think about all those big, huge signs that they have, the destination signs, and then you have the modified underpasses and overpasses they have, and the different farming mm-hmm. fences and stuff that I could have ran into. Oh, I was, yeah. I don't know how long you I was asleep. You got lucky. Oh, I, uh, blessed. I, I don't know, I had a garden angel on my shoulder that day, let me tell you. your happiness out of 10 uh i'm pretty happy these days i think i'd probably go with a with a, a solid nine solid nine yeah that's what, very what, good what time of the day am i answering this question <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know when are you at your happiness happiest, uh, I, happiest i would say at about 11 uh, 30 in the morning no um <laughs> I, I would put, put it as soon as you walk out of here <laughs> Greg skipping down the street. Oh, it's a great date. No, I, I, I'm with Brett. I would be in that that nine range right now. I, I can't imagine things being much better. So yeah, it would only take a, a ten to improve my my golf game. Oh, that like not yeah. like a lottery win, but just a good golf game. Yeah, if I could be, if I could get better wow. at golf. Was at Selkirk yesterday. Got paired up with a couple of nice people from Selkirk. Bill and Kim. Hello there, if you're listening. And uh, I played like a chump, so <laughs> I was very unhappy. They didn't ask yesterday. for your number. Right? No, no. Oh, we should we should golf with Brett again. Yeah, no, they definitely like, we were playing for money. <laughs> no, that was awful. Don't but quit your day job. What is happening with this survey? Well, the happiness index. This is done, I think, almost annually annually by Leisure, Leger. It's Leger, right? Uh, They poll Canadians across the country, obviously, to ask their rate of happiness on a scale of 1 to 10. And then they note which factors they believe influence their happiness the most. And so it found more than half of Canadians have rated their happiness at least 8 out of 10. And there's pretty much no difference between city and rural areas. And the levels that had the highest were on the East Coast in Quebec, the lowest with British Columbia. But basically, the survey suggests Canadians are happier after age 55, which might be retirement, and when they earn a higher income Although most don't consider money as a key factor, that's easy to which say. Which is, that I find hard to believe. It. Yes. Yeah. That uh, when anytime I hear that stuff, I just go really, because yeah, if you're not, the more money you're making, it can it can make life easier. So that I, but I also find the age interesting. Fifty five. Right. Because I, so now it's the people who no longer work and have more money are happier. Uh, for, the theory, for the in most theory, part, right? Yes. Yes. So uh, just so in case certain people are listening this morning, the fact that I'm at a nine has nothing to do with the uh, income I'm earning. (laughs) Just so that's very clear to anybody that might be listening this morning, management, anybody, you know. (laughs) But it might, but you must like the eight hours you spend during the day. Like unless, unless, unless you're 16 hours at home or just infinitely more better than anything you do here. They're they're very good. But the whole idea about drawing this correlation and trying to suggest that it doesn't have anything to do with money and experience is is what's important. 
once again, super easy to say once you've lived through all the trials and tribulations of of being in your 20s, going through school, early parts of your career, and then to be at either the tail end of your working career and be retired and have the money to do those things. It's, it's super easy to say that. Yeah, I've had, as an adult, I'm 41, yes. since I turned 18, mm-hmm. when I signed up for my very first MasterCard at the University of Manitoba, Just started school, saw this thing, and thought, I'm an adult now. I can get a credit card. I have had credit debt since then until last week. For the first time as a grown-up, I am debt-free in terms of credit. That makes me very happy. That's a big deal. Yeah. So you can't say that there's... Do you remember there was a song by a Canadian hip-hop artist named Jellystone? And the line was, money can't buy me happiness but I'm happy when I can buy what I want anytime that I want. <laughs> but here's, so. so here's another fact I just pulled from that study, though. So think about the salary here. 44% of those making 40000 or less reported a high level of happiness. That jumped to 53% if you earned 80000 or more. So it doesn't go that much higher for double the income. 44% were happy at $40,000 or less. You live in Canada. 53 to 80000 You so live in I Canada, know. for crying out loud. I, I, I'm not expecting twice as much money is going to make you twice as happy, but it does make yeah. you happier. Well, at 80000 per year, you're still only making 40000 after tax. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> This was supposed to be the light-hearted portion of the program this morning. How's your happiness the index now? sign. Thanks, McNabb. Down to a six. I'm going to see if I can get you to a four. Great, great, great. Well, and if you want to take, because <laughs> if you go to the Leger site, you can calculate your own happiness to see how you stack up. So I've linked that to our uh, 680 CJOB Instagram story. If you're curious about your happiness level, and you can te- feel free to text us, 204-780-6868. How happy should, are you? I think we should all actually just do the index in one of the breaks and then see what the real number is. All right, let's see. Okay. All right. Because right now you're saying you're a nine. Yep. And a nine. Yep. I'm just going to say eight just to be different. 7.7. 7. 7.7. I don't know. I think actually the, the, the average scale was around 73.7, the way that they're grading it. So uh, you're basically right right there. I'm an now. average individual. Like, I'm hitting <laughs> the, the, the average. average about you, McNabb. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, we'll do it and then we'll report back. We want to start this half hour with the Illicit Drug Task Force. Yeah, six months after that task force was formed to come up with recommendations to deal with the meth crisis, we are still waiting for a report and those recommendations on what we should be doing. We've seen a staggering increase in property crimes, a rise in bike thefts, and in Winnipeg this year, a rise in homicides. So the co-chair of that task force, which was formed last December, is supposed to provide an update to City Hall today, although the report isn't ready. It's just going to be some sort of verbal update. But in the meantime, community advocates across Manitoba aren't waiting. For years now, a Point Douglas group has been encouraging residents to do their part by reporting drug use on meth houses and break-ins. And for the people who are too scared to call police, they've actually got their own tip line. It's called Point Power Line. And Cell Boros joins us now to explain the pretty big impact it's having in his community. Good morning, Cell. Good morning. So this past spring, you tell me, or tell us, uh, tips made to this line have helped close three meth houses. How, how is that working? Tell us about that. Well, basically what happens in Point Douglas is that... Uh, we just ask neighbors to look out their window if they see the symptoms of, of major drug dealing, hard drug dealing. We're not concerned about marijuana. Um, we ask them to give us a call, and then we work with the landlords, with the community support unit of the police, with bylaw enforcement, whatever it takes to uh, get the people who are selling uh, hard drugs evicted. So- and uh, so it's a, uh, it's a community effort, and most of the time... <laughs> We've been able to move people out fairly quickly. Uh, the last couple took a little longer than we would have liked. So what are the community standards laws and, and some of the uh, bylaws and uh, overall regulations that are on your side in terms of uh, bringing this either to uh, the attention of, of police and other authorities as well as the landlords? Uh, what, what, how do you get these people out? Well, you know, we have sort of a hierarchy. If we know the phone number of the landlord, our first call is to the landlord. And we've got a very old list 
of uh, who owns properties in Point Douglas, and a lot of the landlords are the same ones from 10 years ago. We're, we're pressuring the city to uh, make available to us the names of more recent landlords, like the last two houses are uh, land, are fairly green landlords that had never had to do an eviction before. And, you know, most of the time if we phone a landlord and say, hey, all the symptoms of a, of a meth house are there, you know, uh, people coming night and day, uh, people grinding up, cutting up bicycles uh, for selling for scrap metal. Um, in one case, woman wielding a butcher knife in front of the house. Uh, all the various symptoms we see as uh, which we call a meth nest or a meth house. We'll call the landlord. In most cases, they'll move quickly to evict them. And we worked with uh, the Minister of Justice and the Residential Tenancies Branch. And Point Douglas is very proud to be in the forefront to make it easier to evict criminal behavior people and criminal behavior. If that doesn't work, uh, then we talk to the uh, community support unit of the police. And, and these guys, these are real professional police officers. They've been around a while. And one of the things nobody believes us, these guys will go knock on the door at an address where we believe they're selling meth or uh, opioids and have a chat to the guy. And it's almost always a guy and say, look, you know, hey, we know you. You got out of Stony a few months ago. Or you, you know, you've been in jail. Do you really want to go back? Next time we come, it won't be to have a chat with you. And most of the time, they stop dealing. I mean, these are... This is compared to getting 22 police officers together to do a drug raid. Uh, this has taken an hour. Uh, it's a long list. I hope you guys are patient with me. We work with the bylaw enforcement uh, department, and what we've been recommending to them is they have some little-known bylaws that they don't use very often that we're asking them to use for mess houses because uh, a lot of what goes on in mess houses is kids, young people bring in stolen goods and uh, and the person running the meth house gives them a little couple of hits of meth, which costs them maybe 10 bucks, and then sells a $300 bicycle or whatever other stuff is stolen. So we've asked the bylaw department to, uh, uh, to crack down using uh, home business, you know, unlicensed home business bylaw. And uh, I, I believe that's been used twice now. Wow! And uh, in co- cooperation with the police, and these things are just faster. You know, one of the things that drives people crazy is when they've identified one of these drug houses, and then nothing happens. You know, and they want something to happen fast because they don't feel safe when uh, they have a a meth nest near them. So, sorry, I can go on well, and on. I was uh, going to ask, Sal, yeah. because these are all sorts of the little things that you can do to kind of have a, a pretty big impact. And I know you were asked to give some of this impact to the Illicit Drug Task Force. We've been waiting for that report. You've got little suggestions along the way, and we're waiting for some bigger recommendations. Do you have any hope that that's going to start making a difference? Is it, or is it just going to have to be people like you suggesting these minor changes that can that can help? Well, you, I think I warn you, uh, I, I'm sworn to uh, silence until the report comes out. So I uh, I can't com- I'm on that mass committee <clears throat> task force, but I can't comment until after the report comes out. But uh, so you know, have... I can talk. I can certainly talk about what we're doing in Point Douglas. And uh, if you want to people want to take that as uh, some of the things we think should happen in other neighborhoods, that's up to them. Just to have about a minute or so here, Sal, but have there been community leaders in other neighborhoods that have reached out to you to to find out how you're keeping your community safer and this whole idea of looking out for one another and, and making a difference, not just hiding in your homes when, when something's happening on your own street, on the own block yeah. of your street? Yeah, I'm mentoring three different people at the moment. They're getting various degrees of success. Uh, one fellow, he's quite a character. You know, he he's very low income, lives on a shoestring, but he's cleaned up four blocks around his house because he just got fed up with what was going on around him. And you know, he drops by my house and we chat, and I put him in touch with police officer of the community support unit. And he's getting support there. <laughs> and he phones 311 at 2 o'clock in the morning when there's no waiting time. <laughs> so so he's guy. doing really well. So there's a whole bunch of people out there willing to help. And as Chief Smythe has said, 
you know, we can't win this uh, battle without the help of the community. And uh, the we found in Point Douglas, you know, ninety over 95% of the people in Point Douglas are honest. Uh, they want a clean, healthy community, but we've got to make it easy for them to let the officials who have power know what's going on. We've got to make it easy for people to communicate with the official them. And uh, that's one of the things the power line does. And uh, it's, uh, you know, this bright lime green flyer that goes out is uh, is quite well known. Uh, the, the fellow who delivers it, a wonderful young man, says the uh, the bad houses see him, see him coming. <laughs> Occasionally they yell at him. But he's brave and he gets that into every mailbox in Point Douglas. And uh, people let us know where the bad stuff's going on. And it can be done elsewhere. Well, that's an amazing work you're doing, Sal. We appreciate it for your time. And just in case anyone's listening, it's called the Point Power Line. The phone number is 204-956-4090. You give that number a call. You can leave a message. And you guys will get right to work. Is that right? Well, yes, but we only actually act for people who live in Point Douglas. If people from other areas phone me, I give them advice of who to call. Uh, I'm afraid I'm 75 years old. I can't take on the whole city. <laughs> Come on, Sal. <laughs> we need you. Appreciate the time, Sal Burroughs. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much. Mackling McGarry and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on 680 CJOB. Hundreds of thousands of people have, people have liked and shared a Facebook post by one teacher who recently turned to social media to explain why she quit her job. Her name is Jessica Gentry, and the now former teacher out of Harrisonburg, Virginia, says her job put her mental and physical health in jeopardy Every day, because the expectations of the job were simply too much. She says large class sizes, a reliance on technology, and the expectations she was supposed to be a parent, caregiver, and educator all at once were too much. Writing that she would sit in one meeting after another, begging for more support, only to, only to be told, quote, don't lose sleep over them, she says. Another quote, when you love your kids and are passionate about your mission, these messages tear you apart. I cannot imagine being a part of a profession that you love so much and you're in it for all the right reasons, but the system is letting you and your students down. This is what I'm getting out of this. Am I taking it the wrong direction, nope, McNabb? That's absolutely right. And I think the idea here is that, and you hear it's not, you know, it's a different school system in the States. First of all, teachers there are, are paid far less than teachers here in terms of a starting salary. I was looking up this morning and a starting salary for a teacher in the United States can be about $36,000 a year. And that's, that's far lower than it is here. Um, so that's part of the problem. We've paid so little and have such high expectations be put upon you. That's challenging, but I don't think it would be different than a lot of teachers in this country or this province feel when it comes to the expectations that are put upon them. And we hear all the time from teachers here about how budgets, budgets are tight. So they'll often buy their own classroom supplies or their own things for the kids mm-hmm. or things are uh, lots of the, Services they do come out of their own pocket, not to mention their time. And I, and I also think the idea that you're expected to be this, as she puts it, you know, a parent and a caregiver and an educator, it's a pretty big role. And I often wonder about how often kids are just being dropped off the school with people saying, well, the school will take care of that, right? And, I mean, and where that line is and what we're supposed to do as moms and dads and then what we expect our teachers to do. I don't know if it's changed over the years. I can only go based on my own experience. That was the bonus of having a teacher who really cared about what they did was that they were a mentor, they were a friend, they were somebody that you could count on, but maybe it has flipped to a point where that's expected, that they're going to be that for every student or a majority of the students or more students than is reasonably expected. Uh, I just, I know a ton of teachers 
They all work really hard. I know they get a hard time about the fact, you know, that they're about to get... Summer's off, you know, et cetera, but, but come it's on, not Lots of them are in the, in the classroom starting in August to get prepared for the school year. If you are changing grades, it's a challenge. If you're changing areas of expertise where you're, where you're teaching, it's challenging. But I have to imagine there are lots of people who feel this way, not only as a teacher, but in their job period, where here I am, I'm bringing all my heart, I'm bringing my energy, I'm passionate passionate about this, but there's nothing but stone walls in my way within the system I'm working in. Yeah, especially in a job that's so important in helping to shape these young people so that they can go out and take on the world. Like, it's one thing if you're, like, you would, we, every employee, I'm sure, deals with a situation sure. where they're passionate about something at work, they go to management and they're stonewalled for whatever reason, whether it's red tape, whether it's just some dumb policy or whether it's just the boss doesn't agree with you and you just got to walk away. But when it comes to like you're a teacher and you want to help these kids become bright, you know, young people and successful in their lives and to be given this kind of garbage. Yeah, that's got to be super frustrating to the point where she says, I left my retirement fund, my paid sick leave, 46 days left on the table unpaid. I didn't leave for better pay. And here's one thing I think teachers can relate to uh, in Manitoba. One, her number one reason for leaving was class size and throwing in the addition of kids are screaming for extra attention these days with different mental health issues that they're battling with, or you might have ADD or ADHD, and they need more time from their teacher, not less, but the class sides are growing. And we've made some changes in this province recently where we had a cap on class size uh, under the previous government, and then that has since changed. And so uh, depending on where you sit on that, you have some teachers who say, good, we can spend the money else, elsewhere. And you have others saying, no, like the classrooms are going to get too big again, and I won't have time. I'll be stretched too thin. So she mentioned class size, respect, testing, stop testing the young kids so often, her salary. And then as well, her last thing was... Um, that she just felt like she was drowning. Well, with, with all the uh, Finnish players that the Winnipeg Jets <laughs> have drafted over the last few years, and and my visit to Finland last year, uh, I'm I'm acutely aware of some of the things that go on in in uh, that country and their education system so much different than ours. They basically go to school in the mornings, they do their art or their sports or their music in the afternoons. For the most part, there's no such thing as homework in Finland, and they have skyrocketed to the top of the education scale on the planet. And happiness, life satisfaction, Finland through the roof as well. They're also taxed at a personal income rate of 51.6%. They don't seem to mind. Earlier this morning, we told you about this woman who got stranded on an Air Canada plane, fell asleep. They just left her there in Toronto. And she ended up having to get, figure out how to open the cabin door, first of all, and then yell at someone on the ground to come she, help she her out. She used the light, I think, on her phone or something, like as a flashlight to her phone signal. Was dead. Her phone was she, dead. Oh, I read she, this she, part she, that she, she tried she to signal with the phone. Oh, she, she found a flashlight. She found there a you flashlight, go. yeah. Yeah, yeah, because her phone died. She called a friend in a panic, and then her phone died. And, and she then she tried to it. break into the cockpit, or got into the cockpit, and tried the radio, which was pretty smart. Then she undid the door and found a flashlight. She's pretty. She's pretty uh, resourceful, without question. If not terrified after that, if not very, very tired. So we were asking you if you had any similar stories, and it turns out Big Daddy Taz has a story, and he joins us now live on CJOB. Good morning, Taz. Good morning. How are you? I just woke up on an Air Canada flight. I'm fine. <laughs> Good night's sleep. Best night, night's sleep you've had in a long time, Taz. Well, you know, the, the, the thing is that when I fall asleep on an Air Canada flight, they keep waking me up. What's with this? I don't understand what's going on, to be honest with you. <laughs> Good point. For the meal service or uh, because somebody wants to get out and go to the washroom or you have to raise your seat. Yeah, you're right. You're, there is always instructions being uh, barked at you when you're on a flight. Oh, me, it's because I'm snoring. They're like, sir, sir, stop it, sir, sir. Were you snoring back in your, is this school age days? Tell us your story, uh, Taz. Yeah, so what what happened was I was either grade two or three. I don't remember the the, uh, the grade. I remember it was Mrs. Sedgwick, so if she's listening, uh, uh, pay attention. I uh, So I got in trouble. Really? Me? Yeah. And uh, I got sent to the music room, and she said, you stay there until I come and get you. And uh, she looked uh, angry, and uh, so I did. And the, the, the 
the, you know, I heard the school bell go and I thought, okay, well, I'm in trouble. And then it went on and on and on and uh, nobody came and got me. So I just waited because I, I already knew I was in trouble. I didn't need to be in any more trouble. And then finally, uh, our custodian, I think whose name was Jerry, I think came and said, what are you doing in here? I said, I'm waiting for Miss Cedric. He goes, it's seven o'clock. Oh my God. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> said, oh my me? It's seven o'clock. So I sat in there. I, this was in the afternoon. I sat there for probably five hours and I wasn't moving and I got home and uh, I thought, oh, I'm going to get my teacher in trouble. And I told my dad what happened. And he goes, well, you go and apologize to Miss Sedgwick. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's how times Your have changed, I think. worried yeah. about where you were, Taz? That might, be the, that might be a little bit of an issue there. I think it was, uh, they were deafened by the silence that was uh, the lack of me, to be they honest They were with reveling it. in it. <laughs> yeah, they were just like, well, this is awesome. Well, we used to go play all the time, right? It was a different day and age. We'd show sure. up. We show up when we were hungry when we had to use the washroom, right? That was about it. Good point. So why did you have to apologize to the teacher? Well, because it was like uh, 19, uh, early 19, late 70s, and that's the way it was. I had a teacher one time break a yardstick over my shoulder, and I went home to tell my dad that he, my dad made me go buy another yardstick for the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> because on my bike, I, I pedaled my bike with my $1.96 is how much I, I think it cost, and uh, to buy a new yardstick for, uh, for those of you who don't know what a yardstick is, it's a meter stick, but not quite as long. And, uh, went and, uh, to the beaver lumber and I bought a yardstick and I, uh, rode back, uh, with it on my bike and I took it to school the next day and I presented it to, I think it was Mrs. Drummond actually, who, uh, who had gave me a whack and, uh, and that was acceptable back then. Plus, uh, guess what? I listened after that. <laughs> Because I wasn't going to be out another dollar ninety six. I'm telling you straight up. A lot of people will not believe that there was a place called Beaver Lumber once upon a time. Oh, but for sure, they Definitely. were everywhere. They were. They were. They were like, uh, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's, it's as common as a blockbuster. Sorry, it's as common as a Zellers. Uh, sorry, common as a Kmart. Well, anyway, <laughs> you know what you get me, yeah. they were everywhere. <laughs> I love it. I love everything about this. I think the lesson learned was that you like. Uh, you know, it was harsh discipline, but you followed the rules after for at least 10 more minutes, right? <laughs> when uh, we had uh, our uh, like the 25th anniversary, everybody's uh, in our classroom. Everybody had a little plaque on the desk that they have. My plaque was actually outside in the hallway. So that's where I spent a majority of my <laughs> my learning years. Big Daddy Taz joining us live on 680 CJOB. Taz, thank you for sharing the story. Uh, sorry about the yardstick situation. That's uh, harsh. Well, you know what? Guess what? I, I listen now, and I uh, pause for others to talk. So uh, it worked. All right. When's the next time we can hear you talk on stage, Taz? Uh, you know what? I'm taking most of the summer off, but uh, my big fundraiser is coming up uh, in January, and I'll let you guys know, and uh, we'll go from there. How's that? Sounds good. Thank you so much. Big Daddy Taz, Winnipeg ambassador, Winnipeg comedian. Always a pleasure to hear from Taz. Let's switch gears from football to hockey. Kelly Moore here. Yes, indeed. The draft was completed on Saturday in Vancouver, and the Winnipeg Jets stocked up with a couple of defensemen, uh, two centers, and a goaltender. Welcome to Finnipeg. Yeah. It was. Was it two of the three were finished? Or? Yeah, two of the three. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and a Swede thrown in there for good measure, and an American and a Canadian. I, I laughed at yeah. someone's tweet on Friday night. Do the Jets have scouts anywhere else besides Finland, or is that the only country we're looking at? I'll tell you what, if Villa Hinola turns out to be uh, another uh, good defenseman, I don't think people will really care where they come from as long as they help this team win. I was uh, at a birthday party on Friday night when the draft was taking place, and we are keeping an eye on on it uh, for a variety of reasons and um, someone says what do you know about this guy I said they might have well have drafted Ven Lahovi for yeah. all I know yeah. uh, about this player from Finland but it is an endorsement of how far the Finnish oh, yeah. hockey system has come they captured the World Cup or pardon me the World Championship men and women and the uh, and the World Juniors this year fairly so why not be I, I would say <laughs> they're barking up the right tree yeah. of course the Jets uh, traded uh, Jacob Truba last week lots of conversation that the Jets would be busy trading players at the draft that didn't come about 
But the Nashville Predators unloaded P.K. Subban to the New Jersey Devils. Was that a surprise, Kelly? Uh, not really, no, because New Jersey was, or sorry, Nashville was trying to clear cap space for sure. Uh, not only for this year, but of course, Roman Yossi is uh, coming up on the final year of his contract. And uh, Lord knows what they're going to have to pay him to retain him. He'll be up in Drew Doughty uh, uh, territory for sure. Uh, so, you know, that deal was done for the now and down the road uh, because Nashville has designs on maybe going after Matt Duchesne to beef up uh, that race. So I, I did a little bit of homework here uh, in, in advance of coming on. And, and the teams that have really good cap space going into free agency week, uh, which has started today, now the you know teams could start talking to some of these unrestricted free agents. And like the deadline's next week, but you can start yeah, the Monday, process yeah. now. I, I, I don't remember the exact date. It's it's. July one 1st? day this week. Yeah. yeah, July 1st, you can start signing J- July players. 1st, you sign them, but there's also now that window. It's a that three- wooing, or four-day window. That wooing period. The, the, yes, the Corny. wooing period, yeah. But, you know, you look at Vancouver. They have 22 of 23 players under contract, and they still have almost $18 million in cap space available. So Vancouver is certainly, uh, if they choose to do so, uh, can certainly uh, uh, be a big player uh, for can July Can I throw one name out at you? That's Tyler being, Myers. Uh, yeah. Tyler Myers. There's some conversation oh, in the last few weeks that Tyler Myers might, in fact, stay with Winnipeg. I don't think the Jets are going to be able to afford him based on no. the prices that are being yeah. bandied about. Yeah, because Vancouver certainly is going to be able to, uh, you know, to go after him hard. Montreal uh, only has ten. I say only has ten million dollars in cap space available, but they don't have any other players they need to sign. So they have ten million dollars just burning a hole in uh, Monsieur Bergevin's pocket. What about the Jets? They have a ton of money, yeah, but 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 okay. So the Winnipeg Jets, yeah, they're in that group of teams that are at the you know that depending on how you're looking at the list of the top or the bottom of the list as far as cap space available is concerned. However, it is somewhat misleading in that Winnipeg, yeah, they have almost $24 million, but they have Lyonnais, they have Connor, they have Cop, they have Pionk, they have Beaulieu. And you know that they would love to try to sign uh, maybe somebody like Ben Sherratt and Brandon Tanev, who are unrestricted free agents, and, and they're going to have to certainly sweeten the pot there. So that $23.872 million is going to vanish waka, quickly. Waka, what the yeah. Pac-Man's coming is going yeah. eat it up real quick. Some teams that are really vulnerable right now. Vegas is already over the salary cap, because uh, that's the other thing. Uh, if you were busy this weekend, they finally came in with the number $81.5 million, a million and a half lower than was anticipated, right? anticipated and that is absolutely huge for some teams so you've got Vegas they still have four players to sign and they're more than a million over the cap so does anything happen if you're over the cap you have to trade you you have to give away players but you're not punished like there's no it's not like if you don't you're you get dinged with a fine or something it's like you either do it or you you can't you can't be if you were over the cap on uh, when the season opened then that would be different yeah they uh, they need to, to to get under the cap for sure so some conversation that they may, in fact, trade Max Pacioretty or Paul Stastny, exactly. who they acquired in free agency last year, yeah. uh, to uh, get their yeah. salary situation under control. Colin Miller, who's a really good defenseman, I know he's not a household name, but he's a really good defenseman. Uh, they need to trade about three point seven million, I think, uh, of cap space for him too. So because they're trying to sign William Carlson, who's a restricted free agent, Pittsburgh uh, also vulnerable. They're, they have under five million dollars of cap space, and they still need to sign five players. So there's going to be some pretty good people moved out of Pittsburgh as well. And then, of course, you have the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yes, they have $13.5 million left, but they have to sign Mitch Marner, and they also have wink-wink, nudge-nudge deals already done with Kasperi Kapanen and Andre Janssen. So They're going to be moving a ton of money so that would Yeah, so that would leave $7 million, and it's going to cost a lot more than that. And, and they have to sign seven players to get to their complement of 23. So that's the Coles Notes rush through uh, <laughs> uh, version of, of what some teams are looking at going into uh, this week. Do we see a lot of those moves having to take place prior to July 1st? I would, I would say so, yeah, because, uh, you know... You want to be in a position to get your guys, right? For the Toronto Maple Leafs, a a guy like Mitch Marner, and I don't, you know, I know you're up on it, but uh, Loren and Brett, to no disrespect, but I don't know if you're familiar with offer sheets or not, but we haven't had one for a long time. I think Shea Weber was the last one. That's where Hmm. a player is a restricted free agent. So after July 1st, 
if a team wanted to come in and poach that player, for want of a better term, they could come in at a really high number that they don't think the other team can match to sign that player away. So there is some speculation that teams will try to do that to the Toronto Maple Leafs for Mitch Marner because they know they're cap-challenged. And there's also some speculation that perhaps someone might want to take a chance on doing that with Patrick Lyonet as well. Oof. Oh, boy. Yeah, so, I've, so, I've heard so, some crazy numbers being thrown out for yeah. him in terms of, well, I think it's all crazy in terms of where some of these salaries crazy. go. You're yeah. all but, right. But, uh, you know, you're looking at an average in Winnipeg, what, six, five to seven million? Yeah, Murata Tesh. And some people Tesh, are talking about 11 or 12 million? Well, I think that's high. But uh, Murata Tesh did, uh, had a really good article from The Athletic uh, last week, I think it was, where they had uh, Connor and Lyonet both in around that seven to seven and a half million dollar a year mark on long-term deals. So. Around fifteen yeah. million dollars to sixteen for both of them. Yeah, for both of them, yes. So, yeah. that, so that that that, uh, that erases that twenty three point eight seven billion. Real quick, real, real quick. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. For those from the Jets one days, they'll remember that Keith Kachuk was signed to an offer sheet yes, which they had by to, the Chicago uh, Blackhawks. They had to uh, match, and so was Timu Solani yeah. signed to an offer sheet by the Calgary Flames, and the Jets had to match that yeah. way back in the day. And that creates some real severe animosity. Believe me, sure does. Thanks, Kel. <laughs> yeah. My pleasure. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Supporters of the Norwood Pool will be holding a rally this evening in hopes of delaying the demolition. They're called the Save the Norwood Pool Group, and they want the demolition to be put off for a year. Right now, the city council in Winnipeg has decided that it's going to pay $150,000 for that demolition, and it's still not clear then what happens with the future of that site. And this group, of course, wants the pool to be saved. To tell us more about the rally and the hope of the community, we're joined by Gary Dixon and Sylvie Schmidt. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Sylvie, we'll start with you. Can you just give us some details? What's, what's being planned for tonight, and what's your message? Uh, tonight we're sending out a message to everyone that loves the Norwood Pool to come out and we're going to be having um, signs. We're going to distribute, I think we have about uh, maybe about 200 to give out that gives the, that has the iHeart um, Norwood Pool. We encourage people to make their own if they wish. Um, it's just to send, to rally up people and to send a clear message to City Hall that we love the pool and we want to be given the time to look at all the options and and postpone um, demolition for a year. In this uh, world of numbers and uh, data-driven decisions, do we know how many people use the Norwood pool every summer? Uh, Yes. uh, The latest figures that uh, we have was uh, from 2017, and it was just a little under 10,000, like 99,400 and some uh, that were registered as having used the pool that, that year. Gary, you talked about looking for more time and trying to make, take the message that this community really needs to have this pool and kind of a hub for people to go to in the summer and a place to keep kids busy and all the rest. But how much more time do you need to come up with a solution, given that we have been talking about this for several months now? Well, uh, I think that the uh, Save the Norwood Pool Committee worked uh, diligently with the city last year, came up with a number of good options. Uh, you know, the uh, city is in the process of doing a recreation and park strategy. Uh, they've done phase one of that. Uh, and uh, the results of that show that uh, indoor swimming, or sorry, outdoor swimming, wading pools, and spray pads was number four on the list of activities uh, people preferred. Indoor swimming and diving synchro were number five. So it shows there's a, certainly a consistency across the city that people want outdoor facilities such as swimming pools. So, uh, you know, like why are we getting rid of this pool now uh, when, you know, we maybe will, when this phase two of the strategy, which was supposed to start this spring uh, and is now delayed, uh, hasn't taken place. And, uh, you know, maybe what are we, what's going to be going forward? So we're looking at what we can do for going forward. Right now we're going to lose the pool and have nothing to replace it at all. We're not asking for the pool to be open. This summer, we know that's not going to happen, but what can we do in terms of future recreational opportunities in the area? Has there been no promises made at all, Gary, in terms of what comes next for that site when the pool is closed and if it is, in fact, uh, torn out and, and removed? Yes, that's, cor- that's correct. There, there is uh, nothing uh, going forward. They will uh, demolish the pool, fill it in with, with clay, uh, that will be left for at least a year to settle, and then they would sod the site after that, and that would be it. 
so some people still believe that there's going to be a splash pad, but that was just out there as a possibility. There's been nothing like that means uh, going to to uh, the city council budget process and you know requesting that and going through that whole process and that hasn't even started. So. Uh, you know, at this point, there's nothing that will replace the pool. So, Sylvie, is this about saving the pool then tonight, or is it really more about a message that at least let's have a plan in place for that site that we can use going forward rather than just demolishing it with no no known concept for its future? It's, uh, it's, it's both. It's about sending a clear message to City Hall that um, these aquatic outdoor facilities and aquatic um, and other outdoor facilities are at heart uh, for the community. And if you take away the pool and not let the committee to be able to explore all the options, then you have nothing to build with. You, you're taking everything away, and then it's forgotten. And so it's a, it's a two-tier message. It's we want to still save the, the pool. We might not be able to... Um, but there's still, you know, we might not, not be able to keep it at that location, but if we take away everything, then we have nothing to work with. Like, like Gary says, all there's going to be is uh, maybe sod next year, and there'll be an empty nothing. So at least if we keep the, 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 the structure and building, we could maybe redevelop into something else for the community. But those options are off the, the board. If the bulldozers come and they tear everything down, then you have nothing left to build with. Gary, we just have a minute here. I got to ask this question. Is there any concern uh, the face of real estate and development in Winnipeg has changed a lot in the last decade? Is there any concern that this is a a move to free this property up for redevelopment uh, of a different type? No, I don't believe so. The uh, the flood bowl is, uh, you know, there's soccer fields, baseball, three baseball fields in that area. There's hockey rinks on the uh, about just above that. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, the Norwood Community Centre uh, operates that facility and maintains those fields. So I don't believe that uh, I would see the city uh, trying to take that and sell it off to a developer to, to build, uh, you know, apartments or condos or something like that. It would mean removing soccer fields, baseball fields, et cetera, at least in part, depending on what they would do. So, no, I don't see that as a realistic uh, possibility. I think really we're talking about what are the recreational opportunities in this area. The community has said they loud and clear they would want the pool replaced with another pool, but let's look at all the options, let's get a plan, and let's work forward. We get elections this fall, both provincial and federal, and so those politicians have written to the mayor asking him to hold off on demolition and saying, who knows what the situation will be after. So. The Save Norwood Pool Group holding a rally this evening at 5.30 at the pool. Joining us live this morning on 680 CJOB, Gary Dixon and Sylvie Schmidt. Thank you very much for joining us. A Canadian in space getting ready to come home. We're going to learn more about this from our friend Scott Young from the Manitoba Museum and Planetarium joining us live on 680 CJOB. Scott, good morning to you, sir. Morning, everybody. How's it going? Not bad. So this journey that this Canadian astronaut, David St. Jacques, is about to make, Loren was saying it takes like, what, an hour and change for him to make his way back to Earth? Yeah, basically they they, uh, get into the little Soyuz spacecraft, which is literally like fitting three people into the front seat of a Volkswagen bug. And then they detach from the space station. They spend some time going around the Earth, make sure everything's okay. The actual uh, entry only takes about uh, eight minutes or so, but apparently it's terrifying, and it's it's kind of like being in a car crash. Chris Hadfield said you know, there's lots of big bumps and jolts and stuff like that, but it is survivable, and that's all that matters. So they they he's been on the space or international space station for six months, uh, done yeah. a host of things uh, while up there that were pretty incredible, and turning including a six and a half hour spacewalk in April. He did a cosmic catch. I don't even know what that is. What what is that, Scott? Of a- yeah. They- well, the, uh, there's a whole bunch of commercial uh, companies that are now building spaceships to go up to the space station. And right now they're, they're just carrying cargo, but eventually they'll, they'll carry astronauts. So these things come up there, but they're not quite smart enough to dock automatically. So they come up near the space station, and then the astronauts use Canadarm2, our big uh, 
flag-bearing robot arm that's up there to grab these things and sort of put them into the right spot. And, uh, and that's how they get all the food and everything out. And then they fill them full of garbage and dump them back to Earth eventually. So uh, that was the first time that uh, a Canadian has actually used the Canada arm to do that uh, with one of these commercial spacecraft. So that's sort of the, the, the cosmic catch. And it's, it's quite a complicated maneuver uh, that takes probably, you know, a year of his pre-training was all about that. So uh, we got so used to the space shuttle kind of gliding down to Earth and landing like an airplane either in California or in Florida. But this is like old fashioned, like the way they came back from the moon back 50 years ago. They splashed down in the sea somewhere, Scott? Yeah, that's right. The the American Apollo stuff, actually, we're celebrating that 50th anniversary right now. There's a new planetarium show all about it. But it's, it was basically you, you fall to Earth, parachutes come out, and then you land in the ocean. Well, the Russians didn't have a big navy back in the Cold War, so they preferred to land actually in their country on land, but that's a harder landing. So the Soyuz falls out of the, out of the uh, orbit, falls through the atmosphere, um, the heat shield protects it, but then parachutes open, and just before it hits the ground, it fires these rockets, which slows it down so that it doesn't, you know, break apart when it lands. So those rockets have to fire really fast, really hard, and so that's what the car crash is kind of like. Um, and sometimes it doesn't even land right side up. Sometimes it hits the ground and rolls over or whatever. So these these guys will be sitting there waiting, you know, 500 kilometers from the nearest city hanging from their seatbelts, waiting for somebody to come and get them out. Because when you come back from space, you don't have a lot of muscle. Suddenly you're feeling this gravity you haven't had for six months. And even though they work out a lot, you still just don't have the energy to sort of do a lot of things yourself. You mentioned that it's uh, it's like fitting three people into the front seat of a Volkswagen Bug. Why does this capsule have to be so small? Well, back in the day, they made it as small as possible because um, every pound of weight costs, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars every flight. And to, to be as sort of sustainable and inexpensive as possible, they got rid of a lot of the creature comforts. Now, the Soyuz has been flying since 1967 with only a few upgrades. The basic design is still the same. And the Russians have just never bothered adding, you know, like a, a second room or a hot tub or any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, it's as utilitarian as you can get, just enough. In fact, if you're too tall, you can't fly on the Soyuz because there's just literally not enough space for you. So it's, it's still pretty pretty picky about how it works, but it does work. You mentioned height. I was reading this morning something neat, too, about uh, Saint-Jacques has measured himself. He's coming back taller because of having no gravity in space somehow has influenced how he can grow. Yeah, but I mean, basically your spine has all this cartilage in between the, the bones, and gravity is usually pulling down on that, and so the cartilage doesn't really... Uh, expand too far. But when you're in space and that's removed, your spine extends. So everybody's usually a, a good inch or so taller by the time they come back. It, it, it goes away. Um, a lot of the things that we adapt to when we're in space, um, the, the human body is pretty amazing and can adapt to all these things. But then as soon as you're back in gravity, after a few days, you sort of get back into things. Apparently, the, the big thing, though, is they're used to just you know, letting something go in midair and having it float there. And apparently for the next two or three weeks, they can assume that they're going to put their coffee cup in midair and just let go of it. And it's going to spill all over the place. So. <laughs> Muscle memory, so to speak. Hey, Scott, yeah. before I let you go. So this re-entry uh, procedure that uh, these three are going to go through today on the Soyuz capsule, uh, I'm assuming that if we are being space tourists with what's planned in the next uh, couple of years here, we're not going to be going or you or whoever has the money to do this isn't going to be high enough in space where that they're going to be outside of the atmosphere where they would be doing this re-entry situation? You do have a little bit of that. It's not as bad as when you're coming in from orbit because uh, it's not just the height, but it's actually the speed. The, the space station is, is moving at about uh, 25,000 kilometers an hour. And so you have to go from 25,000 to zero. And the only way for that speed energy to uh, be dissipated is to get turned into heat pretty much. The, uh, the tourism flights, they don't go that fast. And so even though they go up pretty high, they don't have as much uh, heat to worry about. So it is, it is an easier thing. But eventually we're going to go into orbit and we're going to go all over the place. So technology will, uh, will get us there. Oh, man, I got freaked out on the pirate ship at the X like last week. <laughs> Do you want to go faster? <laughs> not really. Space travel may not be for you, McNabb. <laughs>
<laughs> I've always said I would. Uh, well, one thing I think is kind of cool, and we, we don't often think about, they're doing all sorts of experiments up in space, right, Scott? And they're bringing things oh. back with them as well to kind of test and show and learn from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the science that's getting done is, is pretty amazing. And a lot of it's actually about the human body. It turns out that when you're in space under, under no gravity, you pretty much get osteoporosis. Your bone density decreases. Um, but then when you come back to Earth, you get better. Um, that would be great to understand fully because then we could help people with osteoporosis here on Earth get better if we can figure out exactly what the situation is there. So there's a lot of medical and health experiments. There's some uh, um, materials experiments, you know, if you're growing um, crystals that make computer chips and stuff like that. When you grow them in, in uh, low gravity, they can be much more pure and so on. There's, there's uh, a lot of medicines that can be made up there that can't be made as easily in gravity. So, I mean, it's all still at the experimental stage, but a lot of the technology, a lot of the science that's getting done in, on the space station is already feeding into medicine and high tech and computing and stuff like that down here on Earth. I, one last thing before we let you go, Scott. They're, not, they're returning with some of those experiments, but also their own waste. Did I read that right? They package up their own... Uh... Can I just say poop and it's bring the, it back? Yeah, it's true. their duty well, to bring um, it back. It's their duty. Got it. It's, it's, it's sample return, right? I mean, you, you, you can learn a lot from studying poop, apparently. And um, so this is, a you know, as we send people on longer and longer space missions, everything that we learn about them can, be, um, can help the next mission be more efficient. So they, they try and do a lot of different experiments on the astronauts themselves because they're really perfect guinea pigs for, uh, for a lot of this. Is that going to, are they bringing that back in the, the, Soyuz? Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a little bit of it there, and sometimes it comes back in one of the other cargo vessels or whatever. All of the, uh, all of the urine gets recycled into drinking water up there, so they don't bring any of that back. So it's just the solid waste. All right. Well, uh, then. I think we've got to leave it there as they make this so. sad face. That was quite like the I was... face. <laughs> Sounds very glamorous. Hey, Scott Young, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We always appreciate the, the time when we get to talk to you, sir. No problem. Thanks. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG, that's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.